At Mercy Village Church, we are loving, abiding, and going. That's how we state our core values concisely. But each of those three core values is stated in its own robust sentence that gets at the fuller meaning. So in this sermon series titled Roots and Fruits, we're examining each of our core values and the why and the what behind each one. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Okay, let's jump in. Um, We have had some crazy weather, right? Um, Some of y'all were flooded in for a while this past time. Some of the others were without electricity for a a good uh, spell of time before. I I think some of you probably experienced both of those things back to back. And what I remember, right, okay, so lots happened in the last three weeks, a lot. Uh, We have crammed all of the winter weather into a three-week period, it almost feels like. But I think the second night that the ice kind of, uh, that rain, freezing rain was falling, by my memory, but we all remember what night, even if it wasn't the second night technically, you remember the night if you were outside when it just felt like every 30 seconds like another branch was falling or another tree was falling. We, uh, my bride and I went out on the porch and we listened to those branches one after another after another and then you'd hear a giant crash of a tree falling. It was a mess. And so this week I have spent my time cleaning up that mess. They're branches. We, if you've been to our home, you've seen a bank of pine trees that, that stands right on one side of our yard. So many branches fell off that, that tree. And so this week, and with some help from my young men, we've been uh, cleaning those branches up. And then early on in the week, all I could think about was all the branches that had fallen. But I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, God said to me, or reminded me, he said, hey, have you thought about all the branches that haven't? They're still hanging on. They're still abiding in the tree. They're still abiding in the trunk of the tree. And through the storm, right, through everything that came, they're still hanging on. They're still abiding. That's where we're headed today. Our second core value, and that's not it. I'll copy and paste the one that Josh early read. So you just have to disregard that and listen. Like I said, the slide guy needs fired. I've been saying that for for weeks. Uh, We are invited by Jesus. We saw that last week. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls us into rest. He invites us into rest. Jesus does. We're invited by Jesus, and we will abide with him communally. That's our second core value. Today we're going to see that to abide in Jesus is to come to him, right? It's to receive that invitation again and again and again as a way of life. That's what it means to abide in Jesus, is to hear that invitation to come to him for rest, to come to him for an easy yoke and a light burden and to respond to it again and again and again as a way of life, as he invites us into rest and joy. To be invited by Jesus is the root, 
And to, to respond to the invitation and to abide in him is the fruit. The series we've called Roots and Fruits, going through our three core values, focusing on what's at the root of the fruit that we hope to see as people. To abide in Jesus is to come to him again and again as he invites us into rest and joy. And so, Father, we, we come, I come to you very humbly right now feeling completely inadequate, and rightfully so, to convey this message. But your word is all sufficient. Holy Spirit, you are able, and Jesus, the work is finished. And so, today in your power, Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us, and what we have not, please give us by your good grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We'll be in John chapter 15 today, verses 1 through 11. What we're going to see is a metaphor. And as with any metaphor, it only goes as far as it's supposed to go. And so we're going to let Jesus set the terms for how far the metaphor goes. If you read enough commentaries or blogs or, or articles on this passage, you'll begin to see people try to stretch the metaphor, and, and it can break down if you stretch it. You can also see people try to undersell the metaphor, right? Like they, they try to say, well, maybe he didn't really mean that. Jesus didn't really mean that when he said it, and they can kind of condense it. But we want to go with the metaphor today as far as Jesus goes with the metaphor. And he starts in verse 1 of chapter 15 with these words. He says, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Now, there's a lot that already just happened there, a ton. Those two words, right, may ring a bell, I am. Not only from the book of John, it's happened six times already, those words have, have been attributed as a quotation to Jesus by the, by the author of John. We'll come back to that in a second, but this should throw you all the way back to the burning bush with Moses. When God comes to him in the burning bush and he, he uh, says, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground, and, and he tells him you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to lead the people of God out. And uh, Moses says, okay, great, uh, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God's response is, yeah, has sent you. That's the Hebrew translated, I am. I am has sent you. Quite literally, I will be. God says, I am the one who was and is and is to come. I am. I was, I am, and I will be. Of course, he gives his proper name, right? So there's no confusion. Moses isn't going to stand up there and say, I am has sent me. Um, and then people are like, well, did you send yourself? And he says, call me Yahweh, the one who will be. The one who was and is and is to come. So Jesus is echoing back to the sovereign God of the universe because he is God. John understands this as he writes his gospel. He quotes seven I am's of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says, I am the vine. I am. Later on, John will uh, attest, right, as he looks into the future in the book of Revelation to what Jesus will say, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, right, sovereignty, uh, the, uh, the fact that he is God being attributed to, to him in the verse, who was 
who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. John wants us to know off the bat, and Jesus wants us to know off the bat in this metaphor that he is God. Not only is Jesus God, but something else is happening in this metaphor too. He says, I am the vine. This language would have been familiar to the people of God because God would have referred to uh, up to this point as it, to Israel as the vine. All through the Old Testament, the metaphor of the vine is used to describe the people of God, Israel. Something interesting is happening, and we're not going to dive deeply into it today, but Jesus is going to do what Israel could never do. Jesus is going to keep the law perfectly. Israel could not. Jesus is going to fulfill all the promises of God. Israel, the prophets, everyone who's come before Jesus could not fulfill it. Jesus will. Jesus is now going to be the vine, the way that God designed the vine to be, in a way that Israel had never been able to do. So Jesus is God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. He is the king. He is the creator. But yet here he describes himself as the vine. This echoes back to last week, if you, if you think about it. So a vine was the root. The vine doesn't get the credit. When you go look at a vine, like a grape vine, you look at two things. You, you look at the grapes, you look at the fruit, and you're like, that's beautiful, I love the fruit, right? And then oftentimes the credit goes to the vine dresser, the person who's gardening and, and doing the work. Look at what they've done, look at what they've produced. In that day, even, trellises were just kind of a new thing. The vast majority of vines would have ran along the ground lowly. Just like we said last week, Jesus' heart was gentle and lowly. You go back to the prophet Isaiah. He says that he will come, right, um, without anything gorgeous to look at. He, he will not have a presence necessarily that everyone's going to say, that's a king. No, he comes humbly and lowly, and gently. And even in this metaphor, he continues to describe himself in that way. I am the vine, lowly, along the ground. God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who, who purges, and he's the one who prunes, as we'll see. He's the one who nurtures and plants and cares. There's no growth apart from the vine dresser. Jesus is posturing himself with humility. He's setting the example for us as he does. Paul will recognize this when he writes the letter to the church of Philippi, in the second chapter of Philippians, when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to be the vine dresser, right? Like he didn't have to, to be the, to, the fruit. He didn't have to be all eyes on me. No, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus models humility. Jesus exemplifies humility. Jesus is gentle and lowly. And when we bear the fruit of Christ's likeness, it will be the same. Gentle and lowly and humble. He goes on in the next verse to describe what the vine dresser does. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, referring to God the Father, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. Let's look at that second half first, because this is interesting, right? So if you are abiding in Jesus today, D.A. Carson reminds us of something. No fruit-bearing branch is exempt from the cutting blade. Doubtless the Father's purpose is loving. It is, uh, it is so that each branch will be even more fruitful, but the procedure may be painful. The thought is not unlike Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, cast in terms of another model, another, another metaphor. The Lord disciplines his own the way a father disciplines his children. But all this is for our good, that we may share in his holiness. There's a nugget there for the people of God that even as we're abiding and even as we're bearing fruit as children of God, there's still suffering that comes. There's still trials and tribulations that come. There's still pruning that comes. The blade of suffering comes to all, but for the true children of God, that suffering, no matter how painful, functions like a scalpel, not like an axe. That matters. Will there be wounds in this life for the children of God? Yes. But God is pruning, the vine dresser is pruning back the cancer of sin and doubt and apathy. But he will never destroy the true child of God. Pruning is not the same as cutting away. Which brings us to the strangest verse that we kind of will encounter in these 11 verses, verse 3, which says, Already you are clean. Jesus is speaking to his disciples because of the word that I have spoken to you. At first read, you're like, well, what does that mean? Already you are clean. Well, if you kind of think about it, even in the English, you can begin to kind of get it. And then the Greek really hammers it home. We say things like, we need to clean away the dead growth, or we need to clean away the underbrush. In the same way that we would use the word pruning, sometimes, not as frequently, uh, but sometimes we use the word to clean, to clean away. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've already been pruned, disciples. You've already experienced pruning. In the Greek, when he says the word prune, he says kathero. And when he says the word clean, he says katharos. Intentionally, I believe, every word mattering, this play on these very similar sounding words that both have their root meaning in, in cleaning away, because what he's saying to his disciples is, listen, you've already been pruned, and that's good news. I, 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 you've followed me. They, they had laid down their nets to follow after him. They had heard his most difficult teachings, and instead of turning tail to run like so many others had done, they'd submitted themselves to his teachings. Right? They had taken their worldview and their desires and their lives, and as the pruning blade of, of the Word of God had come to them, they had allowed it to prune away the parts of them that were not in line with Christ's likeness. He says that's a sign. that Your priorities and values and your worldview and your relationships have been submitted to the pruning of the Father. It's a sign that the Word... Both Jesus, the Word made flesh, and the Word of God, the Bible, has been brought to bear, has been brought into their lives. They've submitted to it. 
It's taken root in their levav. If you were here a few weeks ago, that word for heart that the Bible uses so frequently, that really means the epicenter of who we are. The very core of our being, they had submitted that part of themselves to the word of God and to the pruning of it. That's a sign that they were abiding in Christ. So what about us? Right? Like I have to ask myself that question this, this week. Uh, when the written word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, comes, comes against my sin and my comfort and my idolatries and my lesser loves, do I pull away? Right? Maybe at first, but is the, is the history of my life in Christ one of eventually submitting to the pruning of the Father? Does my worldview need to change? Okay. Maybe at first I'm not ready to play ball, but eventually, by the work of the Holy Spirit and the community of the body of Christ, I submit my worldview to the pruning of God. I, I submit my priorities to the pruning of the Word of God. When the Word made flesh, whose gospel is offensive to the world, when He comes to prune away my pride, my control, my addictions, even my traditional religiosity, do I eventually submit to the pruning of the Father? If your answer today is no, that's a major red flag, uh, Jesus would say. Right? It's not that... Every time, perfectly, we obey, 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 obey. Look at, uh, look at me. For, for 824 days, I have not sinned one time. I've just been at, That's not the point. The point is, is your history, right? Like if, if you were to look back from blimp view on your life, with all the ups and downs of obedience and falling after Jesus, is there this onward and upward trajectory that's kind of forming on that chart of ups and downs? Of you submitting yourself to God at work in your life? If the answer is no, you can be nervous. If the answer is yes, that's evidence that you are abiding in Jesus. That's good news. So are you in the vine? It is essential that we abide in the vine. That's the next point that Jesus makes. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If a branch falls off an apple tree, you could leave it there for 25 years and come back year after year to observe the tree branch on the ground and it would never once sprout a fresh apple. It wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Same with a vine, right? If a branch falls off a vine and you come back every year for the next hundred years, you will never see fresh grapes growing on that branch. It's so obvious. The metaphor here is so crystal clear and obvious, and Jesus wants us to see our relationship with him, the essential nature of our relationship with him, to be that obvious. That there will be no fruit-bearing, right? There will be no Christ-likeness in your life. No uh, love, joy, peace, patience, the fruits of the Spirit. No fruits of righteousness that are listed all through the Gospels. No fruits of power or prayer. No, no fruits of, of uh, goodness. No fruits of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. None of the fruits, right? Like some people try to be real reductionistic about what the fruit is and just say it's only the fruits of the Spirit or only. No, all of the fruits of Christ's likeness. 
none of them are, are possible as true markers of your life, lifelong markers of your life apart from abiding in Jesus. D.A. Carson says it this way, The fruit of believers is a consequence of the Son's redemptive work. The result of the vine's pulsating life. That's the image. The life of Jesus pumping through us. The reason the branch that's fallen off of the tree no longer bears fruit is because the life that comes up through the roots and through the trunk of the tree no longer feeds it. And when we separate ourselves from Jesus, his life, his power, his love no longer pulsates through us. And it's impossible to bear fruit apart from that. You see, telling a branch to abide is the same thing as telling a fish to stay in the water. It's the same thing as telling a human, right, to live on a planet where there's oxygen. It's not imprisoning. It's setting free. There's this interesting thing that, that happens, and I think it's happening even more so in our society these days, where we've begun to define freedom in these absolutely ridiculous terms. That freedom is getting to do whatever we want, whenever we want to. I love how Tim Keller pushes back on that. He gives this example. He says, if, if you see a large sailboat out in the water moving swiftly, it is because the sailor is honoring the boat's design. If she tries to take it into water too shallow for it, the boat will be ruined. The sailor experiences the freedom of speed sailing only when she limits her boat to the proper depth of water and faces the wind at the proper angle. In the same way, human beings thrive in certain environments and break down in others. Unless you honor the given limits of your physical nature, you will never know the freedom of health. Unless you honor the given limits of human relationships, you will never know the freedom of love and social peace. If you actually live any way you want it to, never aligning your choices with, this, with these physical and social realities, you would quickly die, and you would die alone. You are then not free to do whatever you choose. That is an impossible idea. doesn't even make sense. And not the way freedom actually works. You get the best freedom only if you are willing to submit your choices to various realities if you honor your own design. And what Jesus is begging you to see today is that you were designed for the most freedom in abiding in Him. This is not a call to being imprisoned. This is not a call to drudgery. This is a call to freedom. We're chaining ourselves, yes, but we're chaining ourselves to fruitfulness. We're chaining ourselves to joy. We're chaining ourselves to life. We're chaining ourselves to true freedom. So may we abide and may we bear fruit, the fruit of Christ's likeness in our lives. The alternative, it stinks. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We're gathering all those branches up this week, and then we got the uh, chainsaw, the clippers out, we cut all those branches up, and we'll pile them up at the bottom of the hill behind our house, and, and then every single one of you are invited, seriously, we have a big bonfire. It's going to be a blast. 
and some marshmallows, roast some hot dogs. It'll be, it'll be a, a, a great evening for everyone but the branches. It'll be the end for the branches. The branches that are no longer abiding in the tree are worthless, right? Except to be thrown into the fire. Um, this might not be what you came to hear today, but, but hell is real. It's a reality. It's easy to go through this life, and it's almost not even politically correct to talk about it, and, and I understand that, and, and some of your kids are going to have questions about why Pastor Paul said that word uh, this morning, and, but it's real. And I live my life, especially one of the things that Sarah Beth and I were talking about this week is evangelistically. I don't share the gospel like I believe it's real. I don't share the gospel like I believe that that's the end. For some people that are very dear to me. Jesus is doing two things here. One, he's speaking to those who don't abide in him and saying, abide in me, right? Don't let that be the end for you. But another thing he's doing is he's stirring up the hearts of those who do abide. That we would feel a call to go to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our people that we are in relationships with day in and day out and, and call them to abide as well. That the end for those who are not abiding would motivate us to proclaim the gospel to those we love. There's an interesting idea here too that there are people and in, in, it's not as, I don't think it's hard for us to wrap our brains around having come up in the Bible Belt type of area like this. That there are people who go through the motions, but they're not really abiding in Christ. That there are people who are in church, right, but they're not necessarily abiding in Christ. One of the things that happened is we were cutting those dead those branches off those trees, trees that were just very recently living. Some of the branches still, you know, have sap in them, right? Like the like the the health of the tree was still pulsating through those branches, and you got to cut. You got to have the chainsaw for them, but other ones you just nudge them with the chainsaw, and they just fall right off. They looked like they were abiding, but they weren't. They were not abiding. The tree, they're already dead. So there are those who look like they're abiding, but they're but they're not. There's others that that wouldn't even claim to be in Christ, but they do good deeds. They do things that are good all around us. There are good things being done by people who, who don't uh, even claim to be Christians. Another important thing to remember as you think about the evidence of fruit that comes from abiding in the vine is that it's not just outward fruit, it's inward fruit. It's not just things that are visible for the world to see, but it's, it's the intangible things that are happening beneath the, the surface. Sometimes we'll see someone walk away from the church and we'll say, but they sang in the choir. Outward fruit, right? They uh, stood up and gave a testimony in youth group. Outward fruit. They showed up for all the, the social things that we did in the community. 
outward fruit, but I would say dig deeper. Did you see evidence of the things underneath the surface? Did they let the spotlight go to others joyfully? Did they show up to serve in secret the same level they showed up to serve in public? Were they humble and gentle? Was there repentance as a mark, right? Those things that are a lot harder, those evidences that are a lot harder to see. It's outward fruit, it's, it's inward fruit. But the true saints of God keep bearing the fruit of Christ's likeness and they embrace the pruning of the Father through the ups and downs. Let's finish by seeing what abiding is and, and what it brings in the final verses. Again, knowing today, not, not, walk, not just brushing past the essential nature of abiding, that, that, that that's what God would place in our hearts above everything else today, that we must abide in Him. What does it look like practically? Verses 7 and 8 say, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two things that we see there. There's transforming power, transforming power of how we pray and the transforming power of the fruit that we bring. These are simple things. So he says, pray in my name. That's talking about a shift in the way we pray, right? That we pray like we talked about at the very beginning, not give me this thing that I want, do this thing that I want, but instead start praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray in the name of Christ is just not a tagline that you put at the end of your prayer in Jesus' name, amen. To pray in the name of Christ is to, as you are abiding with him, your desires begin to, uh, to become his desires. His desires begin to become your desires. And those desires begin to be the things that you pray for. And when you start asking God for his kingdom to come, he says yes every time. Because his kingdom is unstoppable. So it changes the way we pray. And of course, when we pray like uh, that, when we pray like Jesus, when we ask his kingdom to come, of course our prayers have power. Because we're asking for the thing that God wants. But, but you might say, well why pray then, right? If God's going to accomplish it anyway... Right? Like if he's going to do his will and he's going to start answering my prayers when I start praying for the things he wants, then, then why even mess with it? And, and this is not the, the complete metaphor. Obviously, this breaks down as well. But when I married my wife, she's always been this way. She loves foot rubs. That's her thing. And so the, the feet always sneak their way under the covers and across the bed. And if we're sitting there watching a movie, they're here. The feet, they always find their way over there. And early on, I didn't want anything to do with that. God in his grace, okay, and he's still working on me, but he's beginning to change my heart. So that one day, and this is my prayer, that when I ask my wife, do you want a petty and a foot rub, right? And she says, yes, it won't be because I've asked for what I want, but I've asked for what we want. That we would be that way with Jesus. That the desires of our heart would mimic the desires of his heart. And that's how we would pray. That's how we would come to God. And then fruitfulness abounds. But our fruit is not for our glory. It's for God's glory. The branches don't get the glory. The, the fruit gets, uh, you know, gets a lot of press. But it's the vine dresser that gets the glory.
Abiding brings love and joy. Last verses. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. First, we see the Father's love. Can't get away from that. Our core values are rooted in the love of God. It's the fountainhead of all love. It's the fountainhead of all goodness. It's the fountainhead of everything is God's love, the Father's love. We see Jesus' love. We saw that so vividly last week in his invitation to come to him. And it's not a comparison, right? Like God God the Father's love comes first and then Jesus' love comes in response or God the Father's love is so great that Jesus' love... No, Jesus is God. His love for God is equal to God's love for Jesus. His ability to love is is infinitely as um, full as God's ability to love him. But it's the example that's being set. That this is the type of relationship we walk in. Mutual love. God loving us. Jesus loving us. Us loving him in return. But we, unlike God and Jesus, have to learn to love. And God teaches us through the example of Jesus and the Father. The other thing he says is that obeying is loving. We don't think like that in our society. Again, we think of obedience as constraining. God says obedience is loving. And obedience is freedom. Keep my commandments because my commandments are the pathway to joy, right? It'd be like if someone gave you a map for the quickest route to the beach and you said, no, I'm going to take this other map, which was a map to the garbage dump, and say, I'm going to make it work. But it can't work because it's a map to the garbage dump. That's not where you want to go on vacation. The map, right? The direction, the commands of God the pathway to life. So obeying him shows that we love him. It shows that we believe him. So embrace the freedom of Jesus' way and abide in him as you walk in Christ's likeness. It's what you're made for. Jesus reminds us of that. He says, these things I have spoken to you. Why? So that I can get you in line. <laughs> right? Fools. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. That's the end result. Joy. Again, not easy. Pruning will come. Yes, it will. The yoke and the burden will sometimes feel heavy, even though it's not. The call to obedience will sometimes be engaged because, and with difficulty. Yes. But this is true freedom. Abiding in Jesus doesn't chain you down to drudgery. If that's your understanding of Christianity, you're missing it. Abiding in Jesus is tapping into the very source of life, of love, of power, of freedom, of joy. Will there be pruning? Yes. Will there be suffering and pain? Yes. Will our flesh battle against us and will desire to quit? Yes. Will it be worth all of that and more? Count on. We walk to the joy of Christ. Jesus says, sets the example. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings to us so closely. Let the pruning happen. Let it happen. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Take the yoke. Take the burden of Jesus and, and walk with him. Right? 
looking to Jesus. And I used to read this verse thinking Jesus is way out in front of me and I'm looking to him way out there and I'm like, I better catch up. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says he's running right next to me. And I look to him. You ever ran with someone like that? If I ever run with someone like that, anyone in this room, could we could run together, you would be able to run better than me. But if you're a good running partner, you'll run there with me. Encourage, that's Jesus. Far better runner than you. He's already run the race, he's already finished the race. And now he runs beside you. And we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated the throne of God. If you're not a Christian today, trust Jesus. Come into the vine and abide in him. Jesus was crucified on the cross for joy, yes, but through the pain and suffering of that death absorbed all the wrath of God against sin so that today you could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You could not outrun your sin. You could not lift your sin off yourself. Jesus carried it to the cross. And he died. And all the punishment for it fell on him. And now he says, come to me. Abide in me in faith. Child of God, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come to Jesus. Are you weary and heavy laden? Look to him. Come to him. Last week we said for the Christians, step one, come to Jesus. Step two, see step one. That's what abiding is. You want to ask me what abiding is? That's what it is. It's coming to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again until you stop breathing. When you're weary, come to Jesus for rest. When you feel inadequate, come to Jesus for power. When you feel lost, come to Jesus for light. When you're sinking like Peter, look to Jesus and reach out your hand and he'll lift you up. Keep coming to Jesus. He offered some practical understanding of some ways. I'll just tick them off. It's a prayerful thing. Right? He talks about prayer as he talks about abiding. So might we be prayerful people? That's one way we abide with Jesus is coming to him in prayer. Think about the first things first commitment that some of us made at the beginning of the year. You can still get in on that to start every day with prayer and scripture reading before anything else. That's one way we practice abiding. It's an obedient abiding. He says, obey my commands. So there is a sense where as we look to the word of God and it comes up against uh, you know, who we are and, and it calls us to change, we change. We obey. That's one way we abide. The other thing is it's communal. It's a togetherness. That vine is loaded with branches. That's why our core value says together or communally. We abide together. We pray together. We obey together in the big things and in the small things. And then it's also a fruitful May we be fruitful people. May the fruit of Christ's likeness be seen. We walk together. We talk together. We walk with Christ together. We talk with Christ together as a church family, and fruit comes naturally. That's it. Jesus invited us. May we abide with him together 
as Mercy Village Church, as a way of life. To abide with Jesus is to come to him again and again as he invites us into rest and joy so as long as we're breathing. <coughs> might we always be coming to Jesus together. Father, I can't, I can't impress that on people's hearts. But you can. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will do it. You will let us see today that that's the pathway to freedom and life and joy. Is to abide in your Son, Jesus. May that be the testament of our lives. Nothing flashy. Not a bunch of fruit that, that makes all the headlines, right? But just day by day, fruitful abiding. Day in and day out. Until we stop breathing. For your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.